today we are blessed with the presence of Jamia German Bay, who is a conscious learning expert, award-winning global curriculum designer, who has redesigned learning programs in over 30 countries. She regularly collaborates with and trains top thought leaders to create high-performance programs, events, and talks. Jamia Works has been featured by TED, TEDx, Oprah Magazine, Success Magazine, and Mind Valley. She is also the founder of Kid University, and I am just like so excited to have her on the show today. Yeah! Right. So the first thing I wanted to ask is what is a curriculum designer? Curriculum designer is someone who creates the learning systems, strategies, uh, processes, often the courses and the way that the learning takes place for schools, for organizations, for entrepreneurs, sometimes for live events. Basically, the person who creates how the learning happens. <laughs> so as a parent, who has like special needs child like myself and my audience, when we are looking at schools and curriculums, what are we looking for? Well, you're basically looking for, well, two different, two different answers. So if you're looking for schools, there are definitely a whole lot of concepts that go into play based on what your own personal interests are, you know, and what your own personal goals are for your child. But when you're looking for a curriculum, you want to consider how your child learns, how the curriculum is implemented. So one thing that I always look for in a curriculum for every child is, is it individualized in any way? Is it flexible in any way? Even if you feel like your child is uh, an A student, is it flexible enough so that if they complete their desired uh, learning faster than others, does it give them opportunities to do other things? Because some curriculum not only hinders those who are slower paced, but also hinders those who complete things faster. Does this curriculum give them interest? And, and does it follow um, their own engagement? Because a lot of curriculum that I go into redesign or, or create um, is curriculum that is outdated because it's based on what the teacher knows versus what the child wants to know. So is any of that included in the curriculum? You also want to consider, is the curriculum related to anything my child needs to know right now? A lot of curriculum is based off of uh, state testing and um, acquiring skills that may be useful later, but are they skills that they can use now and does it teach them how they can use it now? For example, does it teach them how to use their math now? Does it teach them how to take their writing lessons and maybe write books now? Or does it teach them things like cursive writing that they may never use? You know, you really want to look at how, how much they can actually implement what they're learning. And is that one of the school's goals? You also want to consider, does the school's curriculum include skills that go beyond IQ? Does it include any of your child's emotional health? Does it include their social skills? Is there time in the curriculum for your child to, to try out any of those things to implement? So many curriculums have learning from back to back to back. And if you aren't learning, you must be reading, but is there time for kids to be quote unquote bored, meaning for them to be creative themselves, you know, and does the curriculum also include the parents in any way? Does it give you as a parent an opportunity to be a part of the learning? And this is really important because there are so many curriculums that do not give the parents a say or an opportunity to be um, a partner with the class. And especially for kids with special needs, but I would say for all kids, anytime the parent can have a relationship with the class, with the teacher, can come in and read sometimes, can come in for career day, can come in and, 
and uh, take part in field trips, that creates a stronger community and relationship in that school. So basically having the awareness period to go in and know that you can pick apart a curriculum and ask questions, even when you're told this is what the state says, you always have a say, that is gonna set you up for so much more success because typically a lot of families don't know that they can look at a curriculum and pick it apart and ask questions. They're just told, hey, look for the right school. It's a good school or it's not a good school. Right. And then you enter the school, but actually pick it apart, ask questions. Ask, what is the, the strategy for recess? What does recess mean to you? What is the strategy for punishment? Are you handing out positive reinforcement or is it negative reinforcement? You really wanna know these things because these also create risks and can create risks between you and your child at home. If you offer positive reinforcement, but that no longer works because they're spoken to negatively or used to things being taken away now because that's what happens at school. So also knowing the way things are done at school and being able to see if they're in alignment with the way you want to raise your child can be a very, very powerful form of knowledge for any parent to have. Most definitely. Most definitely. You have me smiling. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when I looked at curriculums for my son, um, I had those questions. Um, mm -hmm. But it's different when you see something on paper, but then you see it and experience it, right? So for my son, we will, they will ask me questions, especially when things aren't going well <laughs> at school. So they'll mm -hmm. say, what is he interested in? Mm -hmm. um, what kind of positive reinforcement do you use at home? So then we are cohesive versus yes. at school they do dojo points mm -hmm. and at home I am I am not that woman I am not mm -hmm. going to remember these points I am the person that will say every Friday if you do the if you do a b c and d in class then you get a reward mm -hmm. so even though they look differently between school and home they actually are the same thing and right. we're having this conversation about what he's doing and also what a lot of parents don't want to admit is how your child shows up at school mm -hmm. is how they show up at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Xavier is really um, clear and he will tell someone really quick, okay, you need to be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, in class, he tells the children, just go ahead and give up mm. because you don't know the answer. Mm. Damn. As I hear them tell me this, I'm like, yeah, that's him. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ooh, what can I do? Mm -hmm. So instead of me sitting there saying, what can I do? We are actually having this conversation. So, I mean, like, yeah, I picked a good school. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, and it is important that children are receiving something individualized. So just leads to me this question I had when we're speaking is, the school my son goes to, they said, like, we use over a hundred different programs so that we can personalize the child's experience. That's a lot. However, mm -hmm. when I look at his curriculum, it doesn't appear as though we're using a hundred different programs because you keep trying to use this app for reading and he mm -hmm. hates, he hates this app. Mm -hmm. I hate the app. I hate it because he hates it, but I also hate it because the way that it works is it doesn't give them any space to feel accomplished. Either mm. the question is right or wrong. And if, so for instance, let's say it's the letter, it's the word. Let's say the word is spot. Gives them the mm -hmm. word spot. Okay, this is how you spell the word. These are the letters. So the next screen will tell him spell the word. He doesn't spell that word. It takes him back to the previous screen. And this is what happens every time he does not get it right. Mm. And it's frustrating. And he comes mm -hmm. away and he says to me, like, I think something's wrong with my brain. Mm. So, you know, it seems to me like you can have a school that has an excellent curriculum. You need to understand or ask what does that look like in real time? And it, like you said, we're part of the process. So right. if it's not working, 
I think it's time for us to try something else. Mm-hmm. Not a question, but, but a statement. Right. Or does he ever use that app at school? Have they ever experienced that app with him? Yes, he does use it at school. And they have experienced that app with him. And what happens? Is it the same thing? Same thing. So then that's not responsive, you know? And I think that's another important aspect of a curriculum and also, you know, a great education space, a great learning space is they have to be responsive, you know, to your child's needs, desires, and, you know, their their requests, you know, and if a, a student is constantly saying, you know, that they hate this, then it isn't working, then we all know there are so many ways in every subject to teach and enforce, you know, learning in that subject. So the goal is for him to improve his reading. The goal is not for him to be a master of that particular app. So, you know, the app shouldn't be the goal. Yes. And the other thing that stood out for me was when you said, what are the child's interests? What are the child's interests? And my son is more, he's more likely to try to switch a conversation to his interest Mm -hmm. versus what's being taught in class. And what I've noticed is their technique is either their response is, I'm going to act like you didn't say that. Mm. or Mm -hmm. I'm going to acknowledge you said it and redirect you. So it, and it looks like, oh, that's very interesting, buddy, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Mm. And since we're in this virtual space, he will constantly mute himself, even though he is a talker. Like, so he's, Mm -hmm. when he loves a subject, he's thoroughly engaged. Right. And I see them do that with some of the children who are like my son. And Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking, after listening to you, I'm like, okay, so this curriculum is based on the mission versus being responsive to his interests, which will actually make him engage in the curriculum. Yeah. And also to acknowledge that there are children, you know, I have um, one of my students from Korea. I just saw that now he's like, oh man, what is he like 15 or 16? And he's in a minor baseball league. So they are prepping him to um, be a professional baseball player. And I smiled because I remember that kid all throughout class would always swing an invisible baseball bat all the time. And so I made that like, instead of high five, we would all as a class swing the invisible baseball bat. That was his thing, you know? And so we have to embrace those things, you know, to help people to feel accepted. And also to know that everyone has their own unique gifts. So what if I would have said, no, stop swinging your invisible baseball bat. He's about to be a professional baseball player, you know? And he was always perfecting his swing. I had another student, Grace, who she would randomly get up and walk around class just all the time, kindergartner, always get up, you know, and I would say, where are you going? And then I realized that although I was okay with that, because she, you know, she stayed in the class, she was fine, that other students would question, is this okay? You know, so we started talking about every day I would bring in a famous person who had some type of quirk like Albert Einstein, who would stick his tongue out at people walking by, you know? And I, after that, Grace grew up and we constantly would have dinners and she would say, you know, I felt so happy when you talked about Albert Einstein because he was silly like me, but he was smart. And so then I felt like I was a genius too, you know? And so I really feel like that's a really important aspect of an educator is to help kids to see themselves in positive spaces you know so if he likes to talk like call him you know I would call Grace Einstein I would call um other students while you're Aristotle because you always like to teach other people stuff so you know you're like Aristotle you know and for your son I would say you know wow you're amazing you're like Trevor Noah 
you know, like you're the next Trevor. No, you know, give him something to embrace versus squelching his desires. And, you know, for educators listening to this, I already know a lot of the self-talk is, oh, well, how, how will I get through my lesson? You know, how will I get through my lesson? But one powerful thing about that is when you empower kids, you naturally don't have to silence them because they don't see it as something negative. They're now not fighting to be seen or heard, you know? And so for Alex, who would always swing his baseball bat, he knew that he would always have time and space to swing his invisible baseball bat. So it wasn't a fight. He knew, okay, as soon as I get a high five, I get to swing my baseball bat, you know, and it was fine. So it was no longer something to do against anyone you know, and, and it just brings harmony. If you don't have to fight for something, it's no longer a struggle, right? <laughs> yeah, that is so, it's so true. And it's even when you think about a lot of children with special needs, which I like to call special powers, which I still, you can mm-hmm. see, I just started smiling when you said you started to highlight other geniuses or people who we know who had these quirks. It's like mm-hmm. a special power. Um, and we really don't have that in schools. Even though we say we are inclusive, what does that mean? Right. Do you have books about children who are deaf? Do you have books right. about children with ADHD? You know, you have, they have to see a reflection of themselves in a positive light versus they may be the only child, and especially if they're in a regular school, the only child who's getting right. pulled. The right. only child who the teacher is always talking to because she does not know how to engage. So what happens is that's when they start to have this inner battle with themselves. I don't want to be different. So I don't want help. Right. right. I don't want anything that's going to highlight me where someone's taking, making fun of me. So for my son, right. he was dyslexic at one point and he literally did not speak, not because he wasn't capable, but mm-hmm. because when he did speak, the kids would talk about how they didn't understand what he was saying. Um, mm-hmm. Once he got his articulation corrected, then it was he wasn't able to form his ideas and cohesive sentences. But mm-hmm. his experience, especially being pulled, pulled out, it wrecked his self-confidence. And he, he told me, he was like, I don't want to be different. And then when they put him in a classroom with other children like himself, he was happy as a lark. Which goes Sounds a lot like Albert Einstein, too, who used to mumble and make animal noises in class. And his teachers said, oh, you can't, you don't know how to speak yet, you know, and he was thrown out of class just like that, you know, so, or Basquiat, who used to hide in boxes, you know, and would draw all of these images everywhere, and he would be made fun of, and he didn't have friends, you know, so all of these amazing people, I think, as an educator and also as a parent, when you prepare to introduce your child or students to these concepts or to these different people, it also creates empathy within you and also a bit of support knowing it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. There are amazing people who we look up to who have similar backgrounds, who have similar stories, you know, uh, and identifying them for yourself and also showing kids like do you telling them this these stories it's fascinating for kids to hear this like do you know Einstein used to sit and mumble and and say make little animal sounds and everyone would laugh and the teachers would get angry and he couldn't speak for the longest and he's Albert Einstein you know just hearing that is so empowering um and I think it's just that is also what makes learning inclusive and it's those key concepts that we overlook because we're so busy teaching what, you know, the book says needs to be done. Um, but it's those aspects that really humanize all of us and all of our quirks that we have. And we all have a lot of them. Right. <laughs> we all have a lot of them, even though when you look at those of us who did traditional education, when you think of your journey, you realize when you look back, there were times where I felt like this because the teacher did that. The teacher's mm-hmm. only doing what they were provided with. And mm-hmm. when in the United States, since we're using these measurements of, for success, that's the thing that they're focused on. They're not focused on the individual child and their experience. So if you're lucky, 
have that teacher like yourself Thanks. in your journey, right? And, and trauma, you know, teachers are also teaching from their own trauma, from their own unhealed wounds, you know, from their own fears. I, I have seen so many educators react out of fear. You know, when I teach teens in particular, I am very careful about who comes into the room because I know that no matter how successful people are, a lot of people have had negative experiences in high school that they haven't dealt with. And so when I bring them into a room of teens staring at them, they're triggered and they revert in different ways that they wouldn't expect. You know, so also it's a big call for anyone who's educating to also deal with your childhood trauma. You know, deal with the ways you were treated when you were younger, the ways you treated other people when you were younger as well. You know, because I see so much of that coming out of educators when they respond or react, you know, in ways that aren't the best for the kid. And a lot of the times it's you dealing with things that, or reacting or pr projecting things that you never took the time to, you know, become aware of yourself. And that is for parents too. Yeah. That's for parents too. So on that note, I wanted to ask you, what is inclusive parenting? So inclusive parenting is when you include the child on the parenting journey. You include them in the conversations. You include them in your own processing. You know, you don't shut them out when you're figuring out things, you know, you, you let them know, you tell them stories about yourself, you realize that they are here as full beings on their own journey as well. They're not here to be your mini me, you know, they're here to learn and uncover things with you. It's, it's, a, it's parenthood and it's childhood. It's, these are both full experiences, you know, and they're supposed to be journeys that happen alongside one another but uh, oftentimes parents try to shield their kids from things from money conversations from health conversations you know and then what happens is kids never get those conversations they never get those answers so they create in their mind which is often worse stories to fill the gaps you know right. and oftentimes there's those stories are not positive you They're know, um, and so really being an inclusive parent, even when you're picking schools, ask your child, you know, what, what would you like to happen at school? What kind of teacher would you like to have this time? Would you like to have a male teacher or a female teacher? Doesn't matter, you know, and even if you can't necessarily choose a male teacher or a female teacher, sometimes asking those questions will bring out things that your child has never told you before. Well, actually, I don't want a male teacher or a female teacher because of this teacher, blah, blah, blah. Or actually, I would love this because I love the sound of this kind of voice. Or you never know what they're going to say, you know? So a lot of your thinking, I would say, allow yourself to process aloud with your child in a conversation versus always telling them what's going to happen. Because when you do that, you also don't, you don't raise a leader, you don't raise someone who is a critical thinker where you're constantly doing the thinking for them. And then suddenly they're 18 and you're like, okay, go live your life. <laughs> right. But it also empowers them when things aren't right. So for instance, if you're having a conversation with your child about a teacher, like, did you like them? Like, what was your experience mm -hmm. with them? That actually instills in them, like, I have a choice versus if you don't have these conversations for instance, with my daughter, she had a teacher who was speaking to her crazy, like she was mean. She actually told my daughter to shut up. Mm. And apparently this teacher was telling all of the girls to shut up. But mm. when I was doing the private school journey with my kids, I started to ask them a bunch of questions. Like, what did you think about the school? Like, you know, do you feel like you fit in? So because mm -hmm. we had had that conversation, when the teacher said that to her, and she has anxiety. So as people with anxiety, they are people pleasers and they do not want yeah. to have anyone in a negative light. But she told me, she came home, she was like, this teacher told me to shut up. And I said, okay. Oh. And I wrote my leg, I guess, gets to writing, you know, for a black mom, you know, they expect you to go in 
blazing, no. Sat down, I wrote a letter, you know, I sent it to the head of school, to the head of middle school, and she had, she apologized. Now, here was what's awesome about this, predominantly white school. She's the only black child in that classroom. She's the only girl in that classroom that got an apology for being told to shut up. Wow. And it's because when I was asking her the questions, because I did not know what inclusive parenting was, but because mm-hmm. I was doing that, she was able to say, like, this is not right. Because what we don't understand sometimes with, with kids is they will let people say and treat them a certain kind of way because you put them here. Like, you put right. me in this school, so that means whatever they do to me is okay. Right. So I like, yes, inclusive parenting. And also, also for instance, with my kids. So when they first got diagnosed... <laughs> I was like, yeah, we have to fix this. Mm-hmm. So we're going to therapies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in, these, in their class. They're doing all these special things. Never sat down and said, look, you have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. This is what it is. It wasn't until like two years later where we were going to therapy and my son says, I'm so sorry. I'm like, why are you telling me you're sorry? I, I'm just so sorry, mama. It just, you just seem to be so tired. Mm. And I know it's because of me. Mm. Because I never had a conversation with him about why we were doing what, what we were doing. The only thing he could see was, and I was tired because I wasn't taking care of myself, that I was doing a lot of running around. But it made me pause to realize that I should have had that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I find that with a lot of black parents, because that's, that's not where we come from. Like we, we're from a generation of you do as you're told, you know, be quiet, be seen. You can just sit there quietly. So basically you can sit there, but we don't want to hear your voice. That's what we're told right. all the time. Right. So if you're, when you're a parent, you're not actually used to being inclusive, not understanding that if you're going through money problems and your child's life has changed, you know that you didn't maintain your money right or you lost your job, but a child doesn't internalize it that way. They internalize it as though it's their fault. And I think that it's a time for parents to kind of pay attention to children because, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, for children, it's kind of like, I centered. If anything's wrong, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, they find some way when they when they create the story that the onus is on them. The onus isn't on someone else or the parents. It's literally they will always have some kind of way. My parents getting divorced. It's because of me. Mm-hmm. My mom mm-hmm. is unhappy. It's because of me. But you're not having a conversation. Like I have conversations now with my son when he's like, Are you happy? And I'm mm-hmm. like, not really. I'm not going to lie because he can tell. Mm-hmm. So he's mm-hmm. like, well, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, you know, today I just feel a little sad. He's like, well, why are you sad? Is there anything I can do? Mm-hmm. Versus I could just be sad. Right. And his, and his story is, well, she's sad because this is what happened today. Mm-hmm. Because I did something. And then the other thing I wanted to add about inclusive parenting for the audience is, I had a situation with my son. He is an honor roll student. Yay! Right? That's amazing. Yeah. And he had this class. And this is so good. He had his class and he was he he does not want to turn the computer on. And he has one particular class that he had an F on the progress report. And I'm trying to get him to take care of himself tomorrow to himself so he can learn executive functioning. So I'm not going to like be all over him. So I'm like gently saying to him, did you talk to your teacher? Did you do this and that? And it's like two weeks before school's over. And I'm like, Oh, you have F. And in my mind, you have the F because you won't turn the screen on because I keep telling you to turn the screen on. Mm-hmm. His whole demeanor change. Like his whole body language thing. It's like I straight crushed him. And mm. I'm mad. So let's be clear. I'm mad. <laughs> I'm so mad. Right. Middle school teacher calls me. And I said, well, I'm so sorry. And he won't turn his screen on. He was like, Ms. Dawkins, that, that is not why he has that grade. And to be honest, we understand that 
the children nowadays, they have a, a screen phobia. Like a lot of mm. these teenagers do not want to be on screen. So That's as long true. as the screen is on and he's responding, he's fine. Okay. So this is a moment as a parent to clock in with, you just jumped all over your child for no reason. But here it gets better. He continues to say, your son is in a three-way tie for the highest GPA of the sixth grade. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God. And I just totally just <laughs> stomped all over him. After I got off the phone, I knocked on his door and I said, I apologize. Mm-hmm. His whole demeanor changed when the words out of my mouth was, I apologize. Mm-hmm. And I said, I apologize for believing that you got the F because of the screen and you are mm-hmm. right. Cause he, he did keep telling me like it wasn't about the screen. Mm-hmm. I said, what it is, is I said, so I apologize for that. He was like, yeah, you made me feel really bad. And I said, and I apologize. And star is on spectrum. So they could get really fixated on that. And he just really mm-hmm. wanted to press that you jumped all over me. And, and I, <laughs> and I said to him, okay, I've acknowledged that I was wrong. This is a moment that either you can accept my apology mm-hmm. that we can move forward or you can just stay stuck with what I did wrong when I'm right. <laughs> After that, we talked about what he needed to do and everything was fine. But that's part of inclusive parenting. You have right. to acknowledge you're imperfect. <laughs> yeah. And apologizing is a big part of that. I think something that we also have to model for parents and also at school for all of their authority figures, because it's something that in a lot of households, kids are held to, but parents aren't. And it becomes a big rift if we're constantly saying, you know, you need to apologize or you need to own up to this, but they rarely hear, I'm sorry, or apologize, you know, when they feel like they've been wronged. So, you know, I think that's a really powerful way of, of being inclusive, you know, and, and having that that respect there because in often cases there are authoritarian ways of parenting and also of educating where kids don't receive that respect you know and it's that lack of respect that often causes them to feel insecure and not speak up in cases when they are wronged in school because they don't feel like they deserved it oh well you know I'm not equal I don't, you know, this is what happens. This is the way that I'm treated, you know, so the more that we treat them as equals uh, and respect them, you know, and, and own up to our own wrongdoings, the better they are equipped to realize when they have been done wrong and to, and to be aware of that and acknowledge that and also speak up for themselves. Oh, that goes a long way. Yeah. That, 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 especially goes a long way when we're talking about, the racial climate today, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we are like acknowledging it to the world, but as black people, we have experienced it our entire existence. Right. Right. So with this new climate, and then you have special needs children, which for some of us, we are scared because it's a double-edged sword for us, because especially if you have a child who has autism or if they have a sensory disorder, Right speech disorder let's we're just going to name them all down the line and they have a tendency to question or they have a tendency to worry my my son's worry is well when do I have to stop wearing the hoodies Mm -hmm. because I don't want to be shot you know have you ever heard we're driving while black so how can you have productive conversations with your child but not killed their hope per se you know what I'm saying I've talked to parents where they literally have said like I don't really teach my children black history because I don't want Mm. them to hate white people Mm. but you know I would I would question that and ask what kind of black history you're teaching Mm. because the black history I know is very empowering you know um and so I would just I would just encourage that parent to unpack that because 
their true black history has many layers and it's actually very beautiful. Just like the story I told about Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat. I mean, he's my favorite artist, you know, incredible. Um, kids are often taught Van Gogh and Picasso, but not Basquiat, you know? Mm. So their true black history is empowering. I love the story of Ruby Bridges. And I love it because there is one aspect that is dark, you know, people throwing rocks at her as a child, you know, but there is another aspect of that that shows true resilience. This girl integrated schools, you know, she was not deterred no matter what, you know, uh, and there was a teacher who stayed, you know, and worked with Ruby by herself, you know, so there are such beautiful, rich aspects of Black culture that really helps in history kids to see themselves fully. And I feel like not giving them that aspect of Black culture really helps them to create, lean into these negative stereotypes because the media is going to feed them a form of Black culture um, regardless. So either you can combat that with, powerful knowledge especially when you start younger because the younger you start kids are quick to say no that's not what I know I know my students love to correct people even their parents they parents do. call me they'll say Jamia can you tell them you know because my students say no Jamia teacher no she actually said that the first black pilot was this person you know <laughs> and just empowering them with that knowledge you know, and, and letting them know, just go into the history of, if I were talking about hoodies, I would teach them about FUBU, for us, by us. You know, I would dive into the times when rappers and um, athletes in different times in history have fought back, you know, and you, because a lot of kids, feel empowered by sports, you know, and music and show them different artists, songs that they sang, you know, uh, They Don't Really Care About Us by Michael Jackson. You know, there are so many different songs and these are ways that people like you have used their voices and their talents. One of my favorite things, uh, projects to ask my students of all ages, and I'm talking about from five to like 20, is I love to ask them what they're interested in, or if they're older, you know, um, what is it that you wanna, what problem do you wanna solve, you know? And then when they tell me, well, I wanna be a designer, or I wanna be a musician, or I wanna be a math mathematician, then I ask them different questions like, okay, well, how are you gonna fight injustice as a mathematician? How are you gonna fight injustice as an artist? You know, and have them think about that and show them examples because there, there, if you look on streets in Washington right now, you see how artists have fought against injustices. You know, you see, you can listen to the new Beyonce song and hear how musicians have fought in just so empowering them and letting them know that they always have a voice. So, you know, I would always say that the more history that you can give a child, the more beneficial it is. And if you ever feel like the history or knowledge that you're giving a child is harmful, I would question the history that you're teaching them. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, that is like a whole new spin. So just the spin and how people look at history is interesting. That's how they're going to teach their child. So they have to do some unpacking themselves. Yeah, and relearning history, you know, because a lot of times we're trying to teach history from empty spaces within ourselves, you know? So it's gonna take a lot of relearning and unlearning yourself about what black history actually is. You know, what was Black Wall Street? You know, like there are just such amazing pillars of black history and, you know, history in all different sorts of cultures that are rich. And, you know, I am, I am a big believer that the more knowledge you equip the child with, and also the lens that you give them that knowledge through makes all the difference. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about my boys. And I had a conversation with Asar and I was like, do you understand what's going on? And he was like, yeah, you know, black people are tired of white people. And I'm like, oh, no, baby. <laughs> no, baby. But he also is a natural historian. Mm. 
So that's when we start talking about the lens. Uh, So when he has conversations with me, am I engaging with him on what he's learning and looking at it from a different point of view? So Mm -hmm. he looks at it from the point of view of this is what was done. This is messed up. They did all these great things and this is how they were treated. And who are they? So for him, this particular conversation, when he was talking about the um, Harlem Hellfighters, he was talking about when they got back, they couldn't get jobs. White people didn't let them have jobs. White people did this. White people did that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's kind of true. What should I say? I don't know. See, it wasn't (laughs) just white people. And I would shift that conversation about being between racist and anti-racist. Because Mm. the Underground Railroad comprised of a lot of white allies. And so that's also important to to unpack for Black kids as well, is that you have allies. And these are ways for you to be able to detect who your allies are, you know, navigating in this world. Because the conversation is not Black people are against white people and white people are against Black people. And that lens is not going to push us forward either. You know, we have always had allies and supporters. I love the conversation about Marilyn Monroe, you know, and the way that she opened doors for different Black singers by refusing to um, sing in certain places and then agreeing to sing. So knowing what that means is is very important and a powerful part of our history as well because it also creates the lens for them to look for the helpers. If you create the story that white people don't like you and you don't like white people and we are minorities in a country, that's very disempowering for a child. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not necessarily breeding the kind of energy that suits any of us. Right. You know, and and it's not the conversation, but teaching them the difference between someone who is a supporter and someone who is not and what that looks like. How does it look for you to be supportive and not? Why exactly are so many people against Trump? It's not because Trump is white. All of our presidents except one have been white. But what is the conversation about Trump? Well, he's racist, you know, in many ways, you know, and these are the ways that he is. These are the things that he does. And this creates more of a conversation that has more hope, but also gives them a lens to be able to argue different points better. And and that's really important, giving them the language, giving them something to work with, teaching them about what it means to have biases. Because the thing about kids is, they notice energy before anything else. They can tell somebody doesn't like me or they'll tell you, mommy, I don't like that person. They'll tell you even like soon as someone walks in the room, they know the energy. So helping them to unpack that. Well, why? Do you think they have biases? Do you have biases? What are your biases? What do you see when that person comes in? Where did that come from? So, you know, so you're developing their vocabulary but also teaching them about the current climate at the same time. So as you're talking, I'm just thinking about all the conversations I've had with the boys. And some of them, I do ask them questions like, so who is they mm-hmm. in particular? Well, you know, no, because we did have people who were allies who helped us do A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm listening to you, I'm realizing, okay, we also need to fast forward to like the present tense. What does it look like right now? Yeah. And the climate. And then I'm also like cringing a little bit because I think about the conversation or the things that I say Mm -hmm. that gives them a particular impression. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm also learning not to limit or monitor their conversations with other people. Yeah. Because I know for me, it's like, okay, no, we don't say that out loud. We don't say that out loud. So for instance, Mm. they played like Xavier has like the favorite song. And um, they played it and they were like, and they played it because they knew it was his favorite song. However, (laughs) they played it probably like on Kids Bop. So Mm. it went from being a black artist to a white artist. Mm. And they asked him like, Xavier, how do you like this song? And he said, it was weird for me. Mm. And he said, why is it weird? And he said, well, because it's a black song that they turned to a white song. And it's just not right. 
That's powerful. But I am literally in the background cringing. Why? Like, oh my God, you can't say that out loud. You can't say that out loud. He should say that. But that's when we start talking about, as parents, we have some unpacking, but we also need to be more conscious of our thoughts and our responses. Mm -hmm. And even though I was cringing, I was conscious enough to know, let him be. Yeah. Let him be. Because the more you try to silence a child, you are also killing a part of them mm-hmm. that is important. That's like you said, is empowering. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Why I'm not a, say that out loud? I that's am, a powerful lesson that he gave. It was, but it's just like, you know, born in the 70s, raised by parents in the 50s, and we don't pay attention or we're not conscious of as a parent, you're parenting not from your experience or your thoughts per se. You're actually parenting from your parents' experience or right. their parents' experience. It's just like anxiety. And from your fears. You're parenting from your fears. You're parenting from ego, you know, all these things. And, you know, the younger generation, they have the voice right now for a reason. Yep. And a big part of that reason is because they're willing to say things that we were taught not to say because, you know, in our generation, it was very imperative, especially in education spaces to be the good black person, mm-hmm. to be the good black girl or the good black boy, you know, so that you could get the good classes or the good scores or be liked, you know, that was such a big part of our upbringing, you know? Um, and for Xavier's generation, they're they're not called to do that. You know, they're not called to do that. They are they're teaching. They're forcing us to unlearn and relearn. You know, and they can't do that if they're policed by the good black girls and the good black boys. You know, and we have to be very very cognizant of that that they are changing the world. It's them. You know, and I get not wanting them to say, quote unquote, the wrong thing. But have you ever been in a store and a non-black kid said, oh, look at that black person, mom. Or look at that person's hair, you know? (laughs) But we often as minorities write that off as people who are not black have the luxury of being innocent children. But we don't give our own children the luxury of being innocent children being innocent when children. we're around, you know? And so that's just something to be aware of. Oh man, that's true. That's so true. So on that note, I'm going to ask another question about color. So Xavier is on the autism spectrum. So he's more social. He's, his is more social based, you know, he has some academic pieces. So with that being said, he, I like to say he's a straight shooter, right? Mm-hmm. So he's the child you're in a restaurant and he says out loud, what is that white girl doing over there? Mm. And his sister is so embarrassed. She's like, why do you have to call them the white girl? He says, because I don't know her and she's white. Mm -hmm. And that's how I am identifying her. Mm. And then we had another conversation and this is, it's interesting. So we had this conversation. He, he's always talking about this um, little boy in his classroom, Morphe, Morphe. Mofe, Mofe does this, Mofe does that. So one day, my mom asked him, because my mom, my mom has some, some bias, it's okay. So she just wanted to know, she said, is Mofe um, black or is Mofe African? That was the question. And she said, no, Mofe not African, Mofe black. He's black, just like me, hmm. right? So I just, I just laughed. And then later on, he came, he asked me, he said, why are we called black people? Because we're not really black. Like I'm brown, mommy. I'm brown. And some black people not even as brown as I am. He says, so why are we called black? And I'm like, oh, that's so deep. And he is the child that what I'm learning from him is answer the question Mm -hmm. in its entirety because he won't get it. And he'll tell me, he says, you need to explain to me in the way that I can understand. And your short answers, basically what he's saying is your short answers, like that's how it is. 
that's how it's going to be doesn't work for him it doesn't work for kids period those answers and they don't work for me whenever i'm talking to a friend and someone's like oh you got it or you know um just little open-ended statements like that they frustrate me so much i'm like i'm not talking to this person anymore (laughs) they gave me i i say they have a great summer to me you know, when you were in school, if you didn't really know someone well on their yearbook, you were right, have a great summer at the end. So yeah, have a great summer responses. I don't really think they serve people. <laughs> so what can that conversation look like? You know, it's interesting because I recently had that conversation with my friend Grace's son, Aiden, and Aiden is uh, Korean. And um, he was talk- asking about um, just race and he said, oh, you're brown. And I said, well, no, actually, I am black. I'm your black auntie. And he said, but no, you're not black, you're brown. And I said, well, actually, you know, people from India are referred to as brown people, you know? And so when you say that someone is brown, usually they think you're talking about someone from India because people from India often say, I'm brown, you know? And people from who have ancestors from Africa often refer to themselves as black. And that's usually the way that I explain that, you know, about how the world was once one huge supercontinent and people didn't have the type of education that we have now. And so they labeled people by color. They said, these are the white people. And they called Asian people the yellow people. And they called Indian people the brown people. And they called us the black people. And although we are aware of those things, it's not necessarily nice to call other people those things. Because now we are more educated than the people who created those titles were. And every time a new generation has kids, they become even smarter than the older ones. So you're smarter than me because you're the newer generation. And then when you have a kid, they'll be smarter than you because they'll be the newer generation and their teachers will teach them better things, you know? So I said, we get smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. And we start to learn that the things that people told us before weren't so nice, you know? Um, And then I teach them that, you know, for black, some people like to be called African-Americans. Some people like to be called black. It's really different people's preferences, you know? So if you are, if, Xavier wants to be called African-American, that's his choice. He can decide. I prefer to be called black because I feel a connection to everyone who is a black person, whether you are from Africa, whether you're African-American, whether you're Caribbean, you know, I feel like we all have, we are all one. So I say black, all black people, we're the same. Some people, they like to specify. They, like you, they want you to know, I am African. So that's their choice. Some people want you to know, well, actually, I'm Jamaican American. That's their choice, you know? And so you let him decide what's your choice. What's your choice? You know, you can tell people, you know, that's your choice. And that's a good, the way you explained it is so, what's so awesome about it is like, so, you know, Asar is 11, Zay is nine, and they Mm. will have these little tiddly, these little tiny arguments. And one of the arguments was, Asar was correcting him and he was saying we're African-American and Xavier was Mm. like, no, we're black. Now let's Mm. be clear. Xavier really doesn't have any attachment, but Mm -hmm. that's what he's identifying as because that's what I say versus Mm -hmm. Asar is our little mini historian Mm -hmm. has read all of these books. So now he has decided that is his preference. Mm -hmm. And I told Asar, I was like, he can, he can use black if he chooses. Mm-hmm. Because that's what he wants to do. And, you know, Xavier's like, he's nice. So he's like, mm, yeah, right. I'm <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, we're both right. Right. We're both right. Let's be clear. Yeah. And they just, in the dictionary, um, identified Black with a capital B. That wasn't the case before. I think this just happened last week, where now Black with a capital B can be used. Um, <laughs> So that's something to tell us our, you know, to add to that conversation. Um, and now he can choose. Before, I know a, a friend of mine, she was working on a book, and she wanted the title to have Black with a capital B on it, and the publishing house refused to do it. 
And so, yeah, and so she was really frustrated about that because she didn't just want to have Black with a lowercase b. Um, but now officially Black with a capital B um, referring to people of African descent or, you know, um, people who identify as <laughs> Black <laughs> is officially an option. Oh, my God. And I'm laughing because that was one of Asar's reasons why mm. we couldn't be Black. He said because... It's a color because it is a difference when you use it with a capital versus the lower glaze. Mm-hmm. For us, it's it's the color. And he and he was really clear with that. And you know, Zay, you know, he don't care. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I don't hear what you're saying. Oh my goodness. That's that is clarity. And then when you have a child with special needs, especially in this climate, and we call it anxiety. Uh, you know, it's just fear. Let's just be honest. We mm-hmm. call it anxiety, but it's fear around a thing. So right. in this current climate, where we're talking about race and we're being uncandid and like for, my son has a tendency to stem. So he focuses on that one piece and it's really hard for him to shift. Right. So we have in these conversations and about race. So for instance, for, Z, for SAR, it's because white people did A, B, C, and D. And I try to shift the conversation to, well, look, there are white people out here, you know, let's look at the historical context. Mm -hmm. And he's able to say, oh, okay. So then his conversation shifted to, they're mad because they killed George Floyd. Well, you got to be careful with they. You got to be careful with they, you know? And so every time um, one of your kids uses they, question it. Okay. Because they is not specific. And so it's really easy to just group a whole bunch mm. of people together, you know, and to also speak carelessly. They this and they that and, you know, and create an us versus them, you know, and that doesn't really lead to, to forward movement. That's deep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I noticed some of the most difficult people to shift in their mindsets, speak in they terms. Because mm. when you pointed it out, what I heard, I heard everything, but I reflected on myself and I said, oh, I use they a lot. My mm-hmm. mom mm-hmm. uses they a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when you asked me like, why, who's they? I'm like, ooh, yeah. You know better, you do better. Yeah. So yeah, my family too. Whenever I go home, it's they, 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 they. They don't do, <laughs> they don't care about us. They, they, they. <laughs> oh my god! So we're about to close it up, and I had like two more questions. And because it's the cipher, okay, which is a nod to the rapping cipher, I asked you what's your favorite hip hop song, and you said Carrie's song, which is featured in the movie Beats on Netflix. Why is that your favorite song? I listened to it, and oddly enough, I was testing out my headphones this morning, and I have a Spotify playlist, and yeah. your song is on the playlist. I added to the playlist. Cool. And that's what came on, and I was like, oh, this is, oh, yeah. And I was like, this is Jamia's song. <laughs> this is Jamia's <laughs> song. So why is that your favorite song? I just love it. I I love it also because I love the film Beats, you know, and I watch the film Beats and, you know, it's it's a big part of the movie. And if you watch the movie, it's just so touching. It has so many beautiful elements to it. Um, it uses EFT and, you know, teaches the the boy how to, who is a Black teenager who's using EFT to calm down, you know, and it reduces anxiety. And just the element of, the lyrics and the beat and the it's just the melody everything together it just works and i just vibe out to it i even love the instrumental i listen to the instrumental all the time and i just get so hyped whenever it comes on it's a vibe it's just <laughs> such a vibe. when i when i heard it the first time and i listened to it again i was like oh this music made me feel like uplifted yeah. and when i listen to the lyrics i'm like oh man and then I also know what the movie right about as well, which just took it to a whole nother level. And I'm like, oh, this is good. I'm going to add that to my I, <laughs> I just, yeah. And, you know, I really feel like 
it it remind for me it reminds me of like home not particularly my home but just home like where you come from you know and and pushing to do better put coming from a community you know it's just it's just all these elements of just like black pride <laughs> it's just you know yeah as soon as i heard that song i just i love it i I, I, I highly recommend the instrumental, you know, because as soon as it comes on, I'm distracted. That's all I'm going to say. I'm distracted. <laughs> I can't do anything else. I'm like dancing and moving around, you know, it just, it's a whole mood. <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to get the instrumental and yeah. to close out our call today, which so glad that you were able to be here for us um, is a quote that you have. And, and to me, it was just so powerful. And it is, the quote is, it is the mindset of education that is broken. Yes. Yeah. And just, can you just, oh my God, it's, when I read it, I was like, yeah, special education. No, but seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, what is that? What does that mean? If like any people don't have like a context or like, what does that mean that a mindset of education is broken? You know, it, it, it has a lot of layers to it, but you know, the mindset of education is so outdated. It's so authoritative. It is so forced. It is so focused on teaching. It's not growth minded. It's not student focused. It's not joy focused. You know, it's not minority <laughs> inclusive. You know, it's, it's so many things that, that are outdated, you know, and not of this new generation. And so, you know, typically when I have conversations about what I think is wrong with education, people ask me about the curriculum or the books or the subjects. And I'm just like, none of that matters if the mindset is the same. It doesn't matter, you know? It's like, if you have the same, if you're the same person and you're like, I have this problem. I'm gonna wear a yellow dress today. You have the same problem in a yellow dress. You know, your mindset is the same. You haven't done anything to improve or better yourself. You're just wearing a yellow dress, you know? And I feel like oftentimes when we talk about improving education, we just try to put a yellow dress on it, but we don't really try to shift the thinking of it, you know, um, and the entire way that we view education. And so much of it, to me, even even the way that we have kids sit at a desk for hours, the entire thought that that is the way that it goes is broken. So I just think the entire view of it needs to be broken apart like Legos, take each bit of the building and separate these Legos and mix them all around like you would do a little kid, you know, and start over. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. It is. It is so many different pieces that need to be removed, upgraded, changed, instead of like we're just putting the same pieces in the same hole, mm -hmm. not even thinking about how people have changed. Right. And education, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it just seems like the institution of education didn't even have a social emotional context at all. And mm -hmm. as a society, we've grown and we are aware of this, so it needs to be added in. <laughs> and even, you know, there are programs that are trying to include socio-emotional socio learning, right? And it's interesting because when I go in and I do trainings, I'll, I usually do this training where I give all the teachers a post-it. And I say, okay, write all your hopes and dreams. Have one student in mind. Just think, focus on one person and write everything that you want them to accomplish on the post-it. Never have I had a training where someone has turned the post-it over. Wow. Never. They always use one side of the post-it. They usually don't fill this up. And I've done this all over the world. You know, sometimes I'll tell them to think about their own kids. If they're new educators, I'll say, if you're a parent, think about your own child. Think about a child that you're close to. And it's heartbreaking because 
you are the ones who have their hopes and dreams in your hands and you only gave them one side of a post-it, you know? So that's what I mean by the mindset of education is broken. If your mindset isn't even one of abundance, isn't even one, if you don't really believe that they can do anything, if you don't even think that's actually true, how are they supposed to, you mm. know? So we got to start there. We have to do a lot of separating Legos, you know, and, and it needs to start from the top. We can't just throw in social emotional learning for people to teach it who haven't, you know, considered that themselves. And, right. And help the parents too. Yeah. Yeah. Help the parents. Cause I mean, as you speak, I'm like, wow, that is powerful because it does start like, for parents, like one of the things they ask a parent in an IEP meeting is what, is, what do you want your, ch- what do you want for your child? Where do you see them? And a lot yeah. of parents don't have, they have one answer. Um, I want them to graduate. That's, that's their answer. It totally throws them through a loop. The question, is, the fact that you answer, ask that question is throwing them through an entire yeah. loop. So they have like that one answer. Mm-hmm. I want my child to graduate. But your child is a vision. It's a, it's, it's your vision. So where do you see them? What are they doing? How are they feeling? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they empowered? Are they, are they trying to disappear? Because a child, a person, an adult who doesn't want to be seen was a child at Mm -hmm. at one point, something happened to them and they realized being invisible was better than being seen. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that could be the little girl who has so much to say. And she's told to be quiet so much. And mm-hmm. she's told that you are making too much noise. You're mm-hmm. talking too much. What are you talking about? No one's paying attention to you. Fast forward, that's the adult who's quiet, who's depressed, who's anxious. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. This is good. <laughs> so in closing, I just wanted to say thank you so much again. And it's like so many things we could talk about, but we're not going to talk about <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. You can connect with Jamia on IG and Facebook at Evolve Teacher and her website, www.evolveteacher.com. From one parent to another, you are doing the best you can with what you got. Remember to be patient with yourself and your child. Please subscribe and go to the website and let me know what you thought about the episode.